This is the S50. Hello, world. This is the CS50 Podcast, Episode 4, Zero Indexed. My name is David Malin, and I'm here with CS50's own Colton Ogden. David, I'm curious what the first browser that you ever used was. It was probably like Netscape 1.0 or something. Netscape Navigator? Maybe, or or even one of its uh, predecessors, one of the very first prototypes of a browser. But it was old school, for sure. This would have been on a Windows computer? <sighs> Gosh, probably. I start Well, I started off life using Macs, and then I switched, I think, in college using PCs and Windows. And then eventually, I think after a few years of teaching CS50, uh, did I switch back to Macs. So. Uh, I think the meme is that, you know, there are a lot of browsers that have come out. There are a lot of popular browsers these days. Chrome, Firefox, Opera, Edge. On that list is not a particular browser of uh, quite a bit of infamy, that browser being Internet Explorer. Yeah, that one proved the bane of most developers' existence for some time because it was just so non-compliant when it came to certain standards, and Microsoft really did its own thing with various interpretations of the HTML and or CSS specs. I remember even we struggled with that for some of our own web apps. Like you'd get it working on Firefox, you'd get it working on Chrome, you'd get it working on Opera, but damn it, doesn't actually work as you expect in IE, especially IE 6, version 6. Indeed. I mean, we used to even use Browser Stack internally, which is a website that you can test on multiple, uh, you can sort of look in a browser and see it working on multiple actual browsers. Yeah, no, and that was in large part because of that, especially if we, a lot of us develop here on Macs, and so it wasn't really easy to run Internet Explorer, let alone any Windows-based browser, but yeah, we had some third-party help with that, which was handy. Yeah, and IE6 was the particular offender because they did have IE7, they did have IE8, and they, from what I remember, they improved on some of the non-compliance that IE6 sort of bore at the time, um, but what was funny is you know, this week in doing some research for the podcast, I came across an article, uh, a blog post rather, by Chris Zacharias. Yeah, and no, this this was wonderful. Conspiracy to kill Internet Explorer 6. Indeed. Uh, he was a former YouTube employee. And, um, you know, this is back in 2009-ish. Mm-hmm. And back then, I mean, YouTube was huge. You know, it started around 2005, 2006, but 2009 was really when it started to kick off. Yeah, and I think as the story goes, they had just been YouTube acquired by Google, and they were in the process of being integrated into Google's own software-based workflows. But enough of the developers on the YouTube team were just completely fed up, it seemed, with having to support IE6, which was still a non-trivial percentage of their user base. And I think, understandably, YouTube and presumably in turn, Google didn't want to deprecate support for IE6 because there's a lot of uh, employees at companies whose systems are pretty locked down. There's teachers in schools whose computers are pretty locked down. So there's a lot of users out there who can't just follow your instructions to update to another browser. They need like the IT department to actually do it for them. So I think it was an understandable business concern. But as I understand it, the developers wanted nothing to do anymore with IE6. And so they started sneaking into YouTube's own code base, uh, a little banner advert essentially urging IE6 users to upgrade to any number of suggested other browsers, and they give some the, some direct links. Yeah, no, it's pretty crazy. Um, and uh, one of the stories that Chris even talks about in his blog is uh, empty source tags and images would just load whatever the document root was, and this would have the effect of essentially recursively loading, similar to an iframe, all of the server's contents. Yeah, so and that was just one of the bugs I think right. that kept tripping them up. And that one had the, uh, from what I under, from what I remember reading, it actually could cause blue screens of death on Windows machines. Yeah, no, I believe it, and I'm amazed that bugs like that persist. And even if they do eventually get fixed, though, if you have a lot of systems out there that are not 100 percent up to date, then you're 
you're stuck dealing with these kinds of kinds of issues. But what was funny, I thought about the blog post disclosure years later, after which they couldn't really get all that much of trouble, presumably, was how coincidentally the Google Docs team had recently started advertising a similar message on top of Google Documents, which of course was already owned by Google. And that too was encouraging users to upgrade to a newer version of a browser. Uh, so they kind of snuck in under the radar there. But even when it was detected, it sounds like there was some internal tensions with the lawyers, with the managers. Um, but in the end, it kind of worked out okay. But it's kind of a fascinating, I think if you take a step back at it, it's kind of a fascinating risk for any company. Unless you are constantly auditing your own lines of code or you have really a robust process in place, you know, it's possible for one or few developers to slip something past the others um, for better or for worse. Now, this seemed to work out for the best in the end. In fact, I think you noted uh, IE's usage plummeted actually uh, coincidentally or causally after this particular change because YouTube was so popular. But you could imagine some adversarial employees using this power of the ability to change their code base for, for more evil purposes, if you will. Yeah, and on that note, I can certainly understand why companies, especially as large as Google or Facebook, want to uh, instate these code review processes and ensure that this doesn't happen and to make sure there are no sort of committing back doors to production, directly to production, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. We I just spoke recently about a new feature that you can use on sites like GitHub where you can have the notion of code ownership so that if a colleague changes a particular file or a line of code, really, that you or I wrote, we can actually have the whole pipeline notify us before that uh, change to code is approved. But it seems like the YouTube team here benefited from a, a bit of superpowers when it came to who could actually push code, probably some changing processes because it's not that easy, presumably, to integrate an acquisition like YouTube into Google. So they had this window of opportunity where they were actually able to do something very developer-friendly, but not necessarily managerial or uh, lawyerly-friendly. Indeed. I'd like to think it turned out well in the end. It did. In fact, no one really worries about IE6 anymore, let alone IE, which has now been replaced by Edge. And even Edge now is based in part on the same uh, same core processor that essentially Chrome itself is. So things are starting to converge, perhaps, which is interesting. Indeed. And I mean, even modern browsers aren't immune to sort of some of the issues, you know, that plague, um, I guess, any software at large. You know, we, every so piece of software is susceptible to issues. Um, in particular, this week, Firefox had a major issue over the weekend. Yeah, I, I heard that someone didn't renew their certificate, so to speak. Indeed. So Firefox ships with a certificate that sort of um, uh, basically verifies that the add-ons that are installed onto the browser are you know, verified by Mozilla as being legitimate, not malicious. And it turns out that they forgot to renew that certificate over the weekend, or by the by the weekend's um, arrival, and therefore all Firefox users sort of um, over time because it doesn't happen immediately, but within about a 24-hour period, all of their add-ons were no longer functioning. I know, and that's that's a pretty big deal because if people are relying on add-ons or extensions or plugins, however you want to think about them, uh, to have all of your features start working is not that 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 exciting uh, or not that good. And you know, I should concede that uh, this is a not uncommon problem. At least I like to think I'm in good company here because I have, for instance, been guilty of not renewing some of our certificates in time. In fact, this happened just a few months ago where one of our certificates for CS50's websites, uh, so similar in spirit in that this uh, these things too have an expiration date just like code signing certificates can, I had set a reminder to actually renew this certificate and I thought we had migrated all of our certificates to an auto renewal process on Amazon's cloud platform. And so I 
literally kept ignoring, ignoring, ignoring the email reminders that I was being sent because I thought we had automated it all. But nope, it turns out that one certificate was not yet configured to auto renew. And so at the stroke of midnight or whatever it was, the darn thing stopped working. Uh, we and some of our students noticed. And thankfully, it only took a few minutes to fix. But it turns out that constant email reminders and a Google Calendar reminder is not sufficient, at least when I'm in charge of the certificates. Yeah, no, problems like that are somewhat easy to solve. Unfortunately, Firefox had some problems because the certificates were actually deployed with the browser itself. They had to remote deploy a new certificate um, through their sort of system called... um, uh, uh, what's the series called? I think it's called Series, actually. I don't think I wrote it down here. But the system is called Normandy. And they have a system that lets them actually remote deploy the um, the new certificates. Or actually, well, it lets them perform research studies. Studies is the name of it. Okay. So they have, a, they have a tool called Studies, which allows them to remote deploy and remote test um, sort of behavior in folks' browsers. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. this allowed them to ship a new certificate, which they signed, because this is actually technically an add-on this feature um, they signed this with a new certificate that they then shipped with this uh, feature I see yeah but you know it's it's interesting that somewhere in the process there's presumably someone who had set a reminder that didn't quite go off or didn't quite get noticed so it happens to the best of us perhaps yeah thankfully Mozilla in their their blog where they sort of break down this process a la how Facebook recently broke down how their passwords were stored in plain text um, they outlined sort of the, the ways that they got this right I guess and fixing the problem, but they also did disclose the issues that they faced and um, ways that they would approach making sure that it doesn't happen again. Yeah, no, it was really, to their credit, a nice post-mortem online, so to speak, which is worth reading. If you go to hacks.mozilla.org, you can find it under the the May 2019 listings. Indeed. Um, We don't really use Chromebooks here at CS50. Um, We have some of them lying around. We've seen some folks using them. Mm -hmm. But Chromebooks have, you know, up to this point, up until fairly recently, been a fairly limited um, operating system in as much as they're essentially Chrome on a computer. Yeah, dedicated. So it's meant to be used really only in the cloud. There isn't any client-side software, or at least the appearance thereof, even though there actually is. Uh, even though G- it supports Google Docs and Gmail and Google Calendar and some other apps, too, that can be used offline. But, of course, you can't actually send and receive mail and other such notifications if you're actually offline. So it's kind of a product that's a little ahead of its time. I mean, honestly, I do think it's kind of inevitable that we'll see more of this once you have omnipresent Internet access, both on the ground and in the sky and, and elsewhere on Earth, so to speak. Um, but uh, what's interesting is that underneath the hood is an underlying Linux-based operating system that traditionally hasn't really been exposed. It really is meant to be more of a an appliance of sorts, an internet appliance. But now I gather that you'll actually be able to run Linux on these things so much more easily than in the past, which is great for power users who uh, want uh, access to pretty cheap hardware, uh, but nonetheless with um, the ability to do something with Linux on it. Indeed, yeah. Now folks will be able to actually fire up a terminal and interact with the Linux kernel, and uh, it is actually called Termina. It runs on a VM, but the Linux kernel is actually directly interfaced with Chrome OS itself, and in this case, therefore, you can pull up graphical applications and use them directly on Chrome OS like you would use on a GNOME or the like. Yeah, and to come back to price, too, what's been compelling historically about Chromebooks is that you can get a decent computer for like 100 bucks, 200 bucks, and that's really compelling. In fact, there's school some school districts, certainly in the U.S., and presumably abroad that actually have their students use Chromebooks because 
it's so much more of an economical approach to equipping kids with hardware for the classroom. Of course, the catch is, and we've encountered this with some of our students out um, in more rural areas, if they, they are sometimes allowed by their schools to take the laptops home, but they can't actually use them very much because if they don't have internet access and therefore Wi-Fi at home, um, it's not all that useful a device except for, of course, purely offline access. So, But letting people actually use it for multiple purposes now, I think is pretty compelling, especially given those price points. Indeed. And to your point, I mean, I think it is pretty inevitable that we do have internet, even commoditized like utilities, maybe eventually in the future, um, yeah. just given how essential it is to modern life. Um, but I can see, you know, prior to maybe the last couple of years, it's not it's not guaranteed that you'll always have internet access everywhere you go and that it'll be quality internet access. Yeah. But for those folks out there who are trying to learn more about computing, learn more about Linux, I mean, it's a great device, kind of device, and there's a bunch of different versions made by bunches of different companies. It's a great device to kind of hack on and sort of just play around and learn the ropes. You know, back in the day when I was growing up, I used to use actual little tower computers because there weren't really laptops uh, in as great supply, let alone at those price points. They were much more expensive. Um, but it's a great device to just learn and play on, I would say. I think I've seen a, one of those desktops lying around somewhere. Yeah, we still have them in the corner somewhere for parts. <laughs> well, awfully coincidentally, though, Microsoft, it turns out for Windows 10, they're going to be shipping a full Linux kernel with their uh, Linux subsystem, Windows subsystem for Linux. Yeah, you know, Microsoft, to their credit, has really gotten a lot more accommodating of Linux-type usage. Previously, with Windows 10, the earlier incarnation of it, just being able to run Bash, a, a so-called uh, shell program, so that you have a much much better command prompt than the actual software called historically command prompt, which in yesteryear was an actual DOS prompt, so terribly limited. I mean, my God, in like Windows XP and I think even later, you couldn't even copy paste in the program very easily by default. And this is in stark contrast to like any X window interface on Linux or Unix or Solaris or even on Mac OS. So they just really didn't uh, adapt for this. And frankly, given just how powerful it is to have a command line interface on a Mac or a PC or a Linux box, it just seemed very silly to sort of uh, expect users to go to third-party utilities and not to optimize for what a lot of power users and certainly developers might want. Indeed. It's a, it is kind of a barrier, especially when so much documentation online, too, for developers is catered towards Linux environments. Yeah. Um, to their credit, uh, to your point, they are they just announced the Windows Terminal, actually, which is an upgraded terminal. Mm-hmm. So it won't be replacing the command prompt for legacy purposes. They want to ensure backwards compatibility for so much software that relies on it. Um, but they will be a, a releasing this as a separate application that folks can t- download. And it actually looks quite pretty. It looks really nice. No, um, and hopefully it'll improve the performance too for people, which is compelling as well. Indeed, yeah, it's nice to see. It's nice to see sort of this. Um, I guess all these companies embracing Linux and really sort of bringing their computers to a more usable, um, I guess, endpoint. I guess so, though I feel like we're going to invite some uh, religious debate there if we claim it's more usable. But I do agree. and I for, think, for developers, I should say, for I guess in a development environment. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's great power that comes with the command line and just making it more user-friendly. And there's decades of experience and expertise when it comes to all of these uh, shell-based systems that might as well, I think, make it easier for people to use them still. Indeed. Have you heard of uh, KeyPass? I maybe had, but I really heard about it in the context of what I think you're about to tell us about. Yeah. So KeyPass is an open source so- uh, password manager, and they are hosted at keypass.info, mm-hmm. which is an interesting choice for a domain name. Oh, yeah. Sounds legit. Yeah. <laughs> well, it turns out that keypass.info is legit, but keypass.com is not legit. Yeah, I gather KeePass.com, the illegit site, actually has had and maybe still has some malware built into it, so malicious software that you are duped into installing. And yet the site, I actually pulled it up before the podcast today, it actually looks pretty legit. 
And if you search for just KeePass, K-E-E-P-A-S-S, and hit enter, thankfully the first hit is indeed the legit one, KeePass.info, but I think for my browser, third or fourth in the, among the search results on Google were, was KeePass.com, which is the illegitimate site. So you can't even use Google search results necessarily as a compelling signal as to which one is the, the official one when they're so close together, frankly. Yeah, it's kind of alarming. Um, and there's a, a point here about, you know, the... I guess the responsibility of as a developer, as a company, making sure that you purchase the right domains for your application, reach the most users without giving room to nefarious actors to, I guess, kind of trick users into thinking that they're you. Yeah, no, this is a tricky one because often there's squatters. People have bought domain names in uh, anticipation of other people wanting them. And I I can only guess that KeePass.com was taken when the authors of the software decided to get KeePass.info. But honestly, there's so many TLD these are top-level domains now, hundreds. You certainly can't uh, afford most people to get all of them. So keypass.com, keypass.org, keypass.net, and the like, just to kind of uh, protect yourself. And even then, you're vulnerable to typographical errors, even malicious ones. We, for instance, in uh, class I used to teach, uh, used to talk all the time about uh, bankofthewest.com, which is the legitimate website for a bank out west in the United States. But someone very cleverly years ago bought Bank of the vvest.com which in a small font looks like bank of the vet <laughs> bank of the west i can't even pronounce it now because two v's together of course look like a w and honestly at that point especially if that one happens to bubble up in search results um for whatever reasons is even harder to spot as well so this is kind of a fundamental challenge i think when it comes to distinguishing legitimacy on the web i feel like i've seen this too with um like the russian alphabet has a y but it's actually an U, it's an U character. Yeah. And I feel like I've seen this in URLs. Like you can actually get tricked if the URL has that character in the place of a Y, like yahoo.com mm-hmm, with that character. Mm-hmm. It's actually not technically the same character. Yeah. It's a Unicode character. No, and thanks to Unicode, there's so many variants that there's actually other characters that look quite like the, the typical English alphabet that might trick folks like, like you and me. And, you know, I used to advise students that, all right, if you're not sure what the address is of URL, you know, at least rely on your, your search engine. So search for the name of your bank or search for the name of this product, KeePass, in this case, and see what bubbles up. And, you know, granted, the first hit is indeed the legitimate one. But you could imagine if KeePass.com gets talked about enough and somehow the owners of that site sort of game the system in enough ways that their result bubbles up above the legitimate one, you could trick users even then. So, you know, frankly, at this point, I'm wondering, how do you avoid this? You kind of want to maybe start poking around in various articles, maybe in tech blogs or tech websites and see what what some legitimate authors are recommending people do, and hopefully they haven't been duped. And if you see the same URL appearing again and again in websites that you do trust, various news outlets or blogging sites, then at least that's one additional signal you can take into account. But then I dare say you as the human are reinventing what Google calls page rank, where you're sort of analyzing in your mind the number of people that are all recommending this particular URL. And so with high probability, it must be legit. I mean, frankly, that's what the search engine is supposed to do. But clearly those results can be gamed as we're seeing here on my own browser. I don't know if Google does this already, but having some sort of flag for a malicious website such that it shows up very blatantly with maybe some red div or some red tag somewhere that says this site 
is uh, reportedly nefarious. Yeah, they do do that sometimes. And I don't know in this case, is KeePass.com intentionally being malicious or was it compromised such that it's now distributing malware because uh, someone got into it? Well, it turns out that there were a lot of other similar sites recently within the last 10 months that look very identical to this website. Oh, interesting. 7-Zip, um, Bluestacks, uh, Unitboot and Gimp, which is a very popular um, image editor, Snapseed and a bunch of others. 10 months this has been going on. It's a pattern that the... Uh, Actually, this was originally revealed by uh, in the form of a tweet by Berksy Goxel, and they showed this and referenced the other web pages. Interesting. Now, there's a solution in the SSL world where you have a security certificate for your website that if you pay for uh, an expensive enough one, browsers will actually show you a verified signal with a, an additional padlock or check mark in the browser's URL bar indicating that this belongs to Bank of the West, comma, Inc., based in Seattle, Washington, or wherever they happen to be, or California. And that's an additional signal because, and they do charge more for it to do the additional verification. But of course, all it takes then is for an adversary with a few dollars to spend to actually buy one of these same legitimate ones somehow and still trick users into clicking it. So it's a real problem of trust, which is sort of omnipresent on the web and ever more so with examples like this. And ever present in our podcasts. Indeed. And even in the real world, in fact, you you came across a, an article recently, if, if we might transition to the physical world, where some tenants in an apartment building were upset that the owner of the building had installed not physical key-based locks, but rather digital locks that required an app in order to unlock your door. Now, at first glance, I think this sounds fantastic. I mean, that's kind of cool. It's trendy. You can unlock the door from your phone. Maybe there's food being delivered and you don't want to have to go all the way downstairs to let them in. So there's a lot of like compelling use cases for this. But this is also a potential invasion of privacy because now the owner of the building knows exactly who is coming and when and what time of day and how frequently or how infrequently, you know, not unlike a hotel, but in this case, these are people's homes that they're paying for or renting. And therefore, it's a little more worrisome that someone can effectively then track all of their movements. Yeah. And funny too, key pass, we talk about digital keys and now we're talking about physical keys. Um, the, uh, the, yeah, the main issue with this is definitely that, you know, it's putting the power into the people that are, you know, leasing the building, mm-hmm. like an, un, an unjust amount of power. And thankfully, the court decided that it was in the favor of the tenants. The tenants actually want a settlement. They ended up suing the, uh, the landlords for, you know, invasion of privacy and dif- other difficulties related to this whole process. One of them being, for example, uh, one of the tenants was actually 93 years old and couldn't leave their own room because they were locked in and they couldn't figure out how to use the app, which would have been... Um, you know, circumvented had they had just, you know, a basic physical key to open their door with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, even if you're just, your phone dies because it's out of battery, you don't have it with you. I mean, there's other reasons where this would be annoying. Now, to be fair, that could happen with physical keys as well. So, you know, I'm I, I'm inclined to say that maybe the happy medium is to have both physical key as well as the digital key. But the catch is, you know, physical keys have been insecure for years. Locks can certainly be picked uh, more so physically, perhaps than digitally, especially if you have some software-based defenses in place, much like iPhones and Androids do these days. And of course, you know, there's probably a whole lot of locks out there such that when a tenant moves and someone else moves in, the old tenant may very well have copies of those original keys because a lot of landlords probably don't bother spending the money to change the locks every time someone new moves in. So, you know, it kind of goes both ways. It's arguably more secure in some ways, but it's less secure in others, but it's hands down more invasive because your movements are being tracked. Now, then again, you could imagine CCTVs and just security cameras also violating that same tenant. 
But again, this seems like an interesting tension when it comes to sort of convenience and user experience and also privacy and, and security, I'd say. Yeah. And at least with the CCTV, you know, the onus is on the landlord to actually spend all that time looking at the video if they want. I mean, I guess yeah. they could use sensors probably to uh, programmatically figure out when people go in and out of a place. Um, but software can do this a lot quickly. Yeah. You know, you could have a little alert saying, ho, 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 look who came home really late last night. Yeah, no, it's a uh, it's a magnifier, the technology. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a good way of putting it. And it'll be cur- interesting to see how this plays out because in this case, the, ca- the, the situation was indeed settled. So it, there's not necessarily new case law around it, but it'll be interesting to see how this evolves over time and how it just becomes more economical and more... Um, compelling security-wise to track uh, as a side effect users' movements in this way in the interest of having uh, software-based security instead. Still on the note of physical keys, too, one of the things that I recently learned, which was pretty fascinating, is just how easy it is, even given an image of a key, just to create a duplicate of it because they're standardized. Yeah, no, and uh, you know that's true even of the, those car clickers, right? Supposedly, if you walk around like the Disney World parking lot with your own personal key clicker and you walk far enough, eventually you might very well unlock someone else's car because the address space isn't necessarily that large and that's absolutely true for physical keys they just rely on probability that no two people are going to have the same two keys yeah it's pretty alarming when humans are motivated they find a way to get in just about anything yeah you know at that point though it's probably easier just to break a window than to walk up and down the (laughs) aisles of uh, disney world and get caught on any number of cameras so there are some i think downward pressures on these actual risks but it's a trade-off right it's going to probably cost more time or more money or more metal to actually make these things more secure that's true you know we talk about so many things that are kind of depressing negative Um, But it's fun occasionally to maybe shine a brighter spotlight on some of the more positive, fun things going on. And uh, you actually brought this to my attention. They uh, released the 30th anniversary edition of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is a game that you remember playing um, years back. Yeah, and it's probably my favorite book by Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I've read it a few times, and I'll admit I've started reading it more times than I've actually finished reading it, but I do really enjoy it. And years ago, growing up, um, there was a company called Infocom that made a text-based adventure game around uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where there is no GUI, no graphical user interface, it's all text. And so the first line in the game is essentially a statement along the lines of you wake up and it's dark and you have to start typing commands like look around or turn on lights. Sorry, spoiler, 30 years later though. Uh, (laughs) In order to figure out where you are and what you can do next. And it was a really rich game textually because the authors would describe what it is you're seeing. And so it kind of puts into your mind's eye what the scene is without actually having to see anything. And in fact, fast forward to decades later when um, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie came out, like probably 10 years plus ago now, it really did not look anything like the book looked and the game looked like in my own head, which was an interesting contrast. But it was such fun. And indeed, last weekend, I sort of um, escaped into the virtual world of this game thanks to a simulator that's now online. You know, frankly, one of the downsides of the online simulator now 30 years later is that they've added to it some images, which is nice. It's sort of static images akin to what you'd see every few pages in a nice black and white uh, printed book. But it also kind of spoils the imagination that I had. And so I didn't click around enough, but I'm hoping there's a button with which to turn that off so you can just play the purely text-based version. Yeah, you probably even get that probably as a terminal uh, program. Probably, if I dug a little deeper. And I will admit, I got as far as lying in the mud in front of the bulldozer where Arthur Dent's house is about to be uh, knocked down. That's not really a spoiler. That happens like the first few pages of the book. Um, but uh, then I got uh, distracted or fell asleep or bored or something. So I'm going to have to try to come back to it this weekend and see how far I get. It is pretty cool. And it sort of reminds me of the podcast 
where we talked about those Infocom games coming out. I'm guessing they're related. Mm, they yeah. probably are. Yeah. Um, well, and you mentioned another release of a game from yesteryear that you really liked. Yeah. Come out. Yeah. I mean, the, the old and the new. We know we talked about this. So with the old, you know, this is an, an older game. It's 30 years old. Um, but Minecraft is a very famous game, very popular. It was really huge, especially in the earlier 2010s. Um, but it's approaching its 10-year anniversary, and they just released classic Minecraft free-to-play in the web browser. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I never really got into that, but it's been big and gotten bigger, I think, in recent years. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I would say it probably reached its peak in maybe 2015, 2016, but even to this day, it's still pretty popular. It's not, it's not Fortnite popular. That's the new, that's mm. the new hotness. Um, and even that, I would imagine is probably going to be outcompeted at some point in the near future. I think it's just the inevitability of games. They come out, people play them, they get so enrapt, uh, enraptured by them. Uh, and then, you know, the next big game comes out and everyone just sort of jumps ship more yeah, or less absolutely but i do have a fondness granted i grew up with these older games um albeit not minecraft in this case where it's just kind of fun to you know play these older 8-bit games or even black and white games for which you have such fond memories and even though admittedly they don't necessarily hold my interest as much anymore i mean they really were wonderfully done and were cutting edge at the time and um, i think they really do speak to the fact that some of the best games really are about story or about puzzles and about challenges and not necessarily about like 3d rendered graphics and all that which is certainly nice and immersive and all the more compelling but with that you can have all of that but not have a good game nonetheless so um that's not what's perhaps core to some of the best games from yesteryear you know when i played minecraft in virtual reality i was terrified (laughs) the the blocks almost got you there was a uh, there was a cave Uh in the distance and i've never been more scared to go and do anything yeah, and it's, that's a testament to how powerful VR is, and I can't wait to see. I can't wait to get 3D movement with the um, like those treadmill devices and VR all yeah, together. Yeah, that'll be amazing. That is going to be that is going to be cutting edge. Gaming of the future, I do think, will be all the more immersive and escapist for sure. Yeah, we got to get some of that. Um, <laughs> so takeaways then for today's episode, what would you recommend? Uh, I play Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. If you Google this and type in emulator, you can find the anniversary edition on the BBC's website, uh, the British Broadcasting Company, which has the simulator. You might have to create... Actually, you do have to create an account on their website if you want to be able to save your progress because I very quickly realized, wow, you die constantly in the text-based adventure by taking too long or by typing the wrong command. So definitely go ahead and do that. Um, And play Minecraft. And play Minecraft. So I think the takeaways there are, despite all of these dangers and threats in the world to your privacy and security and the like there's a plenty of ways to escape it including this weekend and um i guess when trying to download software be mindful of the domains you know be, find out for sure if you're not 100 percent sure what product you're you're downloading or buying that you're at the right place for it you yeah. know because it's so easy now especially to your point of all these tlds that are now available someone could easily trick you into thinking that you're going to photoshop dot info or whatnot and you're not getting photoshop you're getting malware installed on your computer yeah absolutely do you own photoshop.info is that I, what's happening here uh, i cannot confirm or deny. <laughs> well maybe google photoshop in order to download photoshop <laughs> but yeah i think that's uh, i think that's probably a huge thing Awesome. Well, well, thanks so much to everyone for tuning in. And by all means, chime in online if you'd like to suggest some topics for future episodes. Love to chat about those as well. Indeed. This is the CSVD Podcast, Episode 4, Zero Indexed. Take care. Bye-bye.